Welcome to the Kielda Observatory podcast. Coming up this month, the month of March sees International Women's Day. And in this episode, we speak to a true pioneer of women's health, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. Dr. Mark joined the astronaut training program at NASA and went on to become a senior medical advisor at the Space Agency for over 18 years taking care of the health of men and particularly women heading into space. She's also worked at the White House during the Obama administration as the first senior medical advisor to the Office of Women's Health and today is the MD of iGiant, a non-profit organisation looking to translate some of the things that we've learned from space research, for example, into technologies to improve the lives of both genders here on Earth every day. She's also worked on every public health emergency since the 90s and she reveals how lockdown is having a similar effect on many of us, which is often found in astronauts returning from space. I really do think so. And again, keep in mind that we're living in a remote world. Astronauts communicate with their colleagues back on Earth and their family members remotely as well. Uh, Sense of touch is different too in space. You know, you rewire your neurons there and certainly here we're not allowed to touch people and hug people. I'm Ian Brannan and I'm joined by Director of Astronomy Dan Pai and Astronomer and Science Communicator Naz Jahan Shahi. First of all, Dan, um, once again, no real news to tell anybody about a potential reopening just yet. Things obviously remain closed for the time being. But hopefully, in the distance, through your telescope, you can see brighter days for Kielder Observatory being able to get visitors back again. Yeah, I think so. And and we've got a target date now, which hopefully won't move any further away from us um, and that is the 17th of May so hopefully we should be able to reopen from the 17th of May that's what encompasses the um, doing events indoors because although a lot of what we do is of course outdoors on those nights that are a little bit more rainy we need to be inside and therefore uh, we've 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 we're kind of treating ourselves or we have to treat ourselves as a as an indoor entertainment venue um, so 17th of May is hopefully when we should be able to reopen uh, once more. Fingers crossed. And I know that you have been up to uh, the observatory site uh, once or twice through the course of, of lockdown in order to do uh, one or two jobs that need doing there. But you haven't been up there with your usual crowd of uh, excited participants who are going to be there hanging on your every word. And it'd be great to get back to those normal times and, and explaining space to people the interaction and the the connection that you get with people you start to it's almost like a fuel and once you lose that it really feels like something's missing so when we get back to it i I just can't wait to 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 be able to to chat to people again to tell them about astronomy i think we did um we did our uh our virtual um northumberland dark skies festival recently um and there was a particular section where I was talking about the sun and I found myself just kind of running away with with fact overload. I just wanted to word vomit everything out of my mouth to people who were listening. And I kind of feel like that's what it's going to be like when we reopen again. It's going to be a case of trying to rein ourselves back in. Um, But for some of us, that might be trying to perk ourselves up again, of course, or just into the late nights. That's going to be an interesting factor as well. And Naz, how about you? I mean, it's been a long time, uh, I guess, since uh, any uh, any th- major trips up to uh, to the actual observatory itself for you. But you must be looking forward to being able to get back in action up there. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dan's been lucky enough that he's managed a few trips here and there, but um, I literally haven't been back since closure. So really, really excited to get back up there and remember what the skies are really like, because right now I'm, I'm in Manchester and um, as you, you might have guessed, there's a lot of light pollution around here. Um, so <laughs> it'll be really nice to, to be on some under some really dark skies. I was just saying to the team earlier today, though, that I feel like I, I feel like I've blanked out about eighty percent of my astronomy knowledge. Um, I feel like it's just it's just lost. <laughs> but um, what what happened last time was we came back and we just opened our mouths and it all just came came flooding back. So, um, but yeah, as Dan says, it's it really reminds you why we love our jobs when we have a full observatory full of people excited to learn more and we just want to tell them about it so yeah really really looking forward to it i think i think people have to get their bookings in quite quick actually to be honest um because <laughs> yeah. uh, we've, we've got quite a lot of people who are looking to rebook so if you if you are teetering on the verge of whether to book for summer or not it's better to get it in than not is my uh advice i think we only have a finite capacity and once we do reopen we're not reopening to full capacity we'll still be of course practicing social distancing um so the numbers will be very much restricted as they were uh, during that little period of time we were allowed to open last year so um bookings in advance would be very recommended from the 17th of may i think and the place you need to go to book your space on one of the upcoming sessions over the course of the summer, org. All the info is there of all the sessions that are currently planned and uh, we're quite hopeful that things will go ahead once we get past uh, May, fingers crossed. But uh, don't miss out because things are booking up, as Dan said, all the info, org. But while the observatory remains closed, plenty to look out for in the night skies across uh, both the northeast and the wider world uh, with a look at what's happening in March. Here is our Director of Astronomy, Dan Pye, with the details of what you need to be looking for. Um, so early on in March, so for the next couple of weeks in the very early stages of March, we've got Mercury quite high in the morning sky. Um, it was actually at its greatest elongation um, on the 6th of March, really, really quite far away from the sun from our perspective. So that means we're able to see it just before sunrise, um, very early hours of the morning. And of course, this being such a, a planet that's so close to the sun, it is one of the the, the more difficult to observe planets because we have to wait for these opportune times in order to be able to to observe it and of course it's very small as well so if you find yourself getting up in the middle of the night at maybe 4am for a, for a wee or whatever have a look out the window <laughs> you might be able to see it just across to the uh, <laughs> to the east before sunrise uh, early hours of the morning um, new moon is on the 13th of March. Of course, new moon is when we want to be outside doing some deeper sky observations, looking at things like galaxies and star clusters. Much easier when we haven't got any moonlight in the sky. So that's going to be the, the point in time when it's best to see all of those deep sky objects. And then when we get around to the 20th of March, that's when we hit the equinox, the March equinox, which is good for a couple of different reasons. Um, often... Uh, there's a there's a whole theory surrounding the intensity of auroras uh, around the equinoxes. Sometimes we we experience some stronger aurora activity um, during the equinoxes. So maybe we'll get some huge influx of stuff which drives a big auroral display, and we'll get that um, around the twentieth of March. 
Always great to see the Aurora if uh, if it, of course, uh, shows up and um, always a good chance of seeing it at Kielder Observatory uh, more than probably most places. Do you just want to explain about the cycle, Dan, of Aurora? Because um, we're not really at a high point for seeing lots of them, are we? But there's, there's still always the chance. Yeah, it's because we're, we're going through this period of time that we call a, a solar minimum. So we're seeing much less sunspot activity, much uh, less solar activity. Um, because if you imagine the the sun is um, complex magnetic structure starts to coil itself up and when it does that um, it reaches a point where it's incredibly tight almost like coiling a, a spring up really really tight and it wants to escape the solar surface and it develops these these kinks which um, blow materials out into the rest of the solar system when they break and that's what that's the the kind of aurora making juice now that spring um after a period of time it it kind of resets itself um and becomes neutral again if you like um and not so tight and it doesn't want to blow out of the surface so you end up with much less solar activity much less chance of aurora juice flying across the rest of our solar system and hitting our planet and that's where we are right now where um just coming just coming out of the solar minimum it's going to ramp up to a solar maximum in a few years time and that's hopefully when we'll get to see some more aurora activity yeah um aurora juice is a new phrase for our, all of our dictionaries um next up um just want to touch on the equinox because you mentioned that's happening the spring equinox dan what is an equinox um so the 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 equinox is very much a physical point in which the Earth reaches as it's going around the sun. And what that enables it to do is place the sun directly above the equator. So as we're going on our journey around the sun, it's the point at which we reach where the sun is directly above the equator. And what that enables is the equal amount of time for day and night. And of course, if you've got any questions that you'd like uh, any of the team at Kielder Observatory to answer, then you can always drop us an email, kielderobservatory.org, or through any of our social media channels too, and we'll be uh, happy to answer those questions uh, as quickly as we can, or indeed on the next episode of the Kielder Observatory podcast. Now, a regular feature on the Kielder Observatory podcast uh, is called Pie in the Sky, uh, where we invite you to get your own binoculars, your own telescopes, and from wherever you you are just find a nice bit of dark sky and um, and peer into the heavens and we always give you something to look out for every month and so uh, with this month's pie in the sky here's dan pie where should people be pointing their telescopes this month dan i think they should point it in the direction to be honest actually i think this week actually you know what we'll do is, is is we'll talk about something that um we won't need a telescope for some 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 uh, some some little uh, things that i like to remember in order to be able to find particular stars and at this time of year when we start to creep into the later night and about 10 o'clock onwards we should be able to see this um particular thing appearing in our night sky what you will need to be able to do is locate the panhandle or the the plow the big dipper the the seven brothers whatever you want to call it all those different names that it gets but the plow if you can locate that that's where we're going to start our journey so if you imagine the back end of the plow is shaped like an arc it's a, a curved handle if you follow that arc round as if it were you were going to draw a circle you'll get to a very bright star that bright star is called arcturus so we the way to remember that is to arc to Arcturus 
Um, and that's a lovely star to look at. It's a really nice star. It's in the in the base of a constellation called Bootes. And then what you can do from there is you can go to a different star, following that arc round again a little bit further. But instead of arcing this time, we're going to spike to Spica. So round in a circle to a star called Spica, which is in the constellation of Virgo. And it's a lovely bright star as well. So again, curving round from the back tail of the plough to Arcturus and then spiking down to a bright star called Virgo. And following on from the success of Pie in the Sky, uh, which has obviously been a monthly feature, um, this is uh, going to be um, potentially recreated. I'm not sure it's going to be the same name, but uh, on a weekly basis in future on uh, social media, we're going to be helping you out with your um, home astronomy as well, Naz. Um, What have you got planned? Yeah, so we're going to start a new series where each week we're going to have something for you to find in the sky and we're going to teach you how exactly you can find it as well. So granted, you get at least one night of of clear skies that week. We're going to give you something uh, to look for and tell you a little bit more about it as well. Fantastic. And that's going to be um, coming very soon to the social media channels. And Naz, where can we find Kielder Observatory on social media? So we are across all of the social media platforms. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. This is the Kilda Observatory podcast. Now our guest in this episode for March 2021, the month that sees International Women's Day, is Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark is a world-renowned leader and pioneer in women's health, an endocrinologist, geriatrician and women's health specialist. She was the first senior medical advisor to the Office on Women's Health within the Department of Health and Human Services in the Obama administration and is a medical consultant for NASA. She designed the first Women's Health Fellowship in the US, helped create the National Centres of Leadership in Academic Medicine, the National Centres of Excellence in Women's Health and landmark educational campaigns on critical health issues. She's also worked in every health emergency since the 90s and is well versed on the coronavirus pandemic. As president of Solomed Solutions, she continues to serve as a medical and scientific policy advisor to organisations and agencies dedicated to improving health for women and men around the globe and beyond, including the UN and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She also is the MD of iGiant, which is a non-profit organisation which is looking to harness some of the findings from space research and scientific development to help improve the lives of both genders here on Earth. And here to tell us more is the lady herself, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. Now, with all of those credits behind you, what would be the things that you've found through your own time doing these jobs that really have inspired you as a doctor? (laughs) It's a difficult question because so much of what we do influences us so much. Mm. I would say to see the relevance of space in our everyday lives. There's tech transfer every day in the products we use, the technologies we've developed, the insights and innovation that we've gathered. So for example, when I worked with patients in the intensive care unit, we saw those patients were immobilized, they demineralized their bones. Well, we knew that from being up in space. And we also know what it takes to re condition our bodies you know we're talking right now about covid brain 
not strongly for people who've been infected with COVID, but I think we're also seeing it a bit for people who've been in isolation. We're just not being stimulated. So I think our our, re- our reflexes, our synapses are moving a little slow, more slowly. But we see in space there's neuroplasticity. We can rewire. And so mm-hmm. there are so many valuable lessons that we can learn from that. And I, I think from my end of it, it's for me, it's that individual connection. You know, I've had the privilege to work in really exciting environments and to speak in exciting places such as the UN or the Vatican and, and to be at, go to every continent and explore every part of our beautiful planet. But it's taking care of a patient and seeing them survive and, and have an opportunity to, to live their lives. To, to me, there's nothing better than that. So I think deep down, I love space. I love all this. But you know, being a doctor and trying to help someone to make it through the next day to me is the greatest scientific accomplishment. And that's fascinating what you say as well about um, this past year or so with COVID-19 lockdown. Um, distancing being a big part of our lives and how that's having similar physical and mental effects that um, that perhaps you usually only associate with astronauts. I really do think so. And again, keep in mind that we're living in a remote world. Astronauts communicate with their colleagues back on Earth and their family members remotely as well. Uh, sense of touch is different too in space. You know, you rewire your neurons there and certainly here we're not allowed to touch people and hug people. So you know, that's varied as well. Um, I think also our bodies are being deconditioned as we're sitting here doing these podcasts and not up and moving around as we used to. And actually, the lack of scheduling, I think, is extremely important. We all live our lives by schedules, by, you know, 24-7, right? This is our, our um, chronobiology, and now everything is sort of woven together. Astronauts go around the planet right now every 90 minutes. So for them, their sleep cycles, sleep-wake cycles are important. I think so many of us have altered sleep-wake cycles. I know I have. Um, So, you know, we see so many real interesting similarities. And then the issue of living in a hostile environment. Certainly in space, it's a hostile environment. Well, every day around us, we sense that we're in a hostile environment. The next person could have COVID and infect you. It used to be the next package you touched, you thought you would get COVID. Uh, you go into a particular building. Is there a proper ventilation system? Do I have my mask on properly? Am I wearing my PPE correctly? So imagine you're on the moon or Mars. Is your spacesuit fitted well? There are no nicks, no holes. So I think there's some similarities here, which is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So following on from that, how does the body change in space? Oh, my goodness. It, immediately and quickly and dramatically. And that's why I've been so enthralled to study it. Talk a bit about it in my book, Stellar Medicine, A Journey Through the Universe of Women's Health. In fact, actually, what I do with that book is every chapter has got some space component because I just find it so fascinating. I also find the public really resonates with it, too. It opens their minds to more complex ideas. We see every single system changing. Uh, There is a decadal review that I helped to lead co-chair back in 20, from 2012 to 2014, looking at every single system. It was our second decadal review. And from the way the body adapts, you're able to discern small differences between men and women very quickly and very dramatically. So it's a lovely platform to study sex and gender-based healthcare. It's time to actually begin doing another decadal review. And this one, I want it to be more translational. 
less of an academic exercise, but more towards, okay, we have these research findings. How does it translate into products or into our training protocols or the processes we need to adopt or any kind of educational program? So I'm hoping that will eventually launch within the coming year. And I know that you're involved in um, the processes be behind sending astronauts to Mars and back. Um, and I'm wondering what challenges you face um, in doing that. Well, I've been working with Explore Mars, which is a wonderful organization to look at human settlements of the planet. Again, when you look at adaptation to space, you have to look at the different environments you're going into. So Mars is three-eighths gravity. The moon is one-sixth. We'll probably be going to the moon first before we go to Mars. But the other challenge is our radiation, for example, and isolation, which I think all of us are becoming a little bit more familiar with these days. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you need to see how the body's adapting so that you can develop the appropriate countermeasures to keep people as healthy as possible so they can perform and do their jobs well. I think some of these decadal reviews that we have launched um, help to provide some insights into that. Uh, we know we need to shield our bodies from radiation. Men and women can be exposed to different levels of radiation, so that shielding is extremely important. We also know there's a condition called SANS, and that's an acronym for Space Associated Neurosensory Syndrome. It used to be called Visual Impairment Intracranial Pressure. And basically, as you go into space, fluid goes into your head. It flows cephalically towards your, your head, towards your brain. And yeah. the pressure from that can impact the vessels leading to your eyes. And that can actually impair your ability to see. Interestingly, men are more symptomatic compared to women. And it may be, again, the, the anatomic changes, the physiologic changes, the hormonal milieu, the differences there that may equate for why men and women experience that syndrome differently i think um hollywood makes it look very uh <laughs> clean cut doesn't it <laughs> they have none of that in between i know and it's it's really um some do better than others um, yeah <laughs> but i i think also children who are looking at a lot of our space sparing movies um, may get the impression that it's quite simple and if it were that simple, we would have already done it. It's quite complicated. Um, and especially, you, you saw recently, we landed Perseverance. And prior to that, we had another where we called the seven minutes a tear because, you know, you're entering, even though there is less atmosphere than there is here on Earth, it's still challenging. And, you know, just to land the robot was extraordinary. And we'll have a small little helicopter that will be flying, and that's extraordinary. So what we take for granted here on Earth is magnified dramatically when you go to another planet. You're the founder and managing director of an organisation called iGiant, which is a non-profit organisation, but the work you're doing there is using the science that we know about the differences between men and women and how they can be translated into everyday things that we use to make our lives more comfortable and, and a lot better in general. Tell us about some of the work that you've been doing through iGiant. What we try to do, for example, through my nonprofit, iGiant, is we try to get the world to see through this lens, as I mentioned, across health. So we know it impacts drugs and devices. The IT, the way we use our devices, our smartphones, our computers, our tablets, Transportation, we see it in accidents. For example, women have 47% greater likelihood 
of more severe neck injuries in a car accident compared to a man. And then in the all-encompassing retail end, yes, in everything from our personal protective equipment, we certainly see that in our fight against COVID-19. We see it in our spacesuits, to our tools and hardware, to our shoes and clothing, really to almost every single aspect in our lives. And, you know, it's not a question of a product or a policy or a program or protocol being shifted to be quote-unquote feminized. Generally, that means connotes a peak-it-shrink-it approach. But really looking at it scientifically, trying to assess how people move, anthropometry, body proportion, ergonomics, how we interface with our environment around us. And speaking of that, let me just bring a term that people will become more familiar over the years, and that's epigenetics. As we interact with the environment, the environment interacts with us. It actually shifts our genome. My sort of inspiration into studying science was um, being surrounded by really great educators and also um, inspirations for me from films to visiting incredible science centers um, and being encouraged by family to sort of look up at the sky a lot more. Um, so I'm just wondering what your um, inspirations were, what, what were your influences to, to study science and choose it as a career? It's interesting that you talk about as a child how that influences what you do later on in life. And I think it really has profound impact. We know certainly science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, if you add in even art and design, all play an important role. For me, I'm a product of the Apollo age, so it kind of ages me a bit, but I actually did see a human being land on the moon and actually walk on the surface. And that had a profound impact. And I remember telling my father that night that I wanted to do that as well, and that I wanted to actually practice medicine on the moon. He even foreshadowed that we would have planes going back and forth. I think he, he saw what it would be eventually a space shuttle. So no, um, absolutely the opposite. And that was so wonderful. Unfortunately, he didn't dissuade me because at the time, women were not accepted into the space program. That wasn't until the mid-70s in the United States. So I always had a fascination, you know, just looking at the stars and trying to understand constellations and comets and meteorites and, and you know our role in the universe and then my love for medicine came about because um, I had opportunities to read a lot of wonderful books autobiographies of famous doctors and had a chance to be a volunteer in a hospital and I was just enthralled and then I had this incredible physiology class when I was in high school that just convinced me that was what I needed to do so I pursued being a physician, but I never let go of my dream of the stars. And when I went into my fellowship training, my advanced medical training, I actually um, began to look at research that was conducted in space and how it might be relevant for how we deliver healthcare on Earth. And that became really important for me as a guiding light. And then I applied for the astronaut corps, became a finalist, and then had an opportunity to connect with the space program as a medical advisor and pursued that for 18 years and loved it. And it's still with me. I, I just, I believe now as we commercialize space travel and we really democratize space, that all of us will have the opportunity to go and experience what it feels like to be in microgravity. But I don't think it's any sort of secret that um, science is a male dominated field. Um, most most of the, the sort of subsectors are all kind of male dominated. And I know for me, at university, I was only one of five girls in my university class when I studied physics. 
Um, so my question to you is, um, did you ever face any challenges that you feel like your male peers didn't? Or um, do you feel like you had to work any harder to get to where you are? That's a really good question. I have a twin brother and he's an engineer. So he actually worked on the shuttle program. So we, we both were able to pursue our interests from you know, different vantage points. For me, I went to a women's college and a Ivy League um, women's college. It was called Barnard College, connected to Columbia University. So again, I was in an environment where it was just given that you were going to excel and that you were going to work hard to do it. It was a bit shocking when I went to medical school where I was one of 25 women out of a class of 150. I found that very um, discouraging. Certainly today, those numbers are different. In my training program, there was more equity. And I think for me, because I have pursued trying to look at sex and gender differences, the challenge has been that I have to encourage people to realize that this isn't about who's better, faster, or smarter, just different. And we have the ability, we have the tools now through computational skills and programming, 3D printing, artificial intelligence to, to really develop what we need so that everyone can do well. The, the vision of my nonprofit is to improve the safety and quality of life, including work performance for everyone in every environment, including space. And so that has stayed with me. In regard to any type of sexism, I've encountered it along the way, of course. Um, and I've been in the environments where I've been the only woman. And I find that sometimes can be challenging. You can actually um, be in the room, but truly not have a seat at the table. And I, I think it's somewhat unfair when we put all the pressure on women to have to make sure you get yourself in the door. Because we can do so many front flips to get in the door, we actually have bruises, but we're actually then may not be welcome. So that's where we have to encourage all our colleagues, our male peers, to understand the value of what we're doing. And in the sense that they understand that diversity in teams improves work performance, improves productivity, improves the economic calculus of, a, of an organization, of a company, and it improves satisfaction, career satisfaction for everyone. So I, I look back, but I really want to direct my energies forward so that we change the environment so it's not an issue for future generations. Do you have any sort of advice for women considering an education or a career in science? Well, I think a couple would be that one, you are really passionate about it, that you're doing it because you love it and it's for you, not to please others because there are going to be hardships and it's hard to persevere when it's not your dream. Two, to be flexible. You may come in thinking you want to be one thing, but you may find something else intriguing and don't be so wedded to it that you, you don't allow yourself to explore. And three, I think this is really important. I think it's valuable to find mentors along the way. And then when you get to a particular point in your career to have sponsors, you can be absolutely brilliant. But if you're not given the opportunities and the tools and the resources to do your job well and safely, you're not going to succeed. And it's not because of anything you've done wrong. So that's where I think it's important for both the individual and for the institution, the institutional environment to honor that, to ensure that those tools, resources, and opportunities are provided. Just going back to um, your time as senior policy advisor to the Obama administration, 
that was during the Ebola outbreak and now obviously you're focusing um, on the coronavirus pandemic and obviously we're all aware of how devastating it's been and um, of its lasting effects that it's going to have but I'm just wondering if there's any sort of positives that have come from from both of those scientifically have you seen any positives from it? It's a really great question because we tend to focus these days on the negatives so it's nice to hear the wording about positivity. I've actually been part of every public health crisis um, since the mid-90s in my government roles as the senior medical advisor at HHS, as the civilian medical advisor to Chief Surgeon General, to also NASA was involved in public health preparedness as well. So it's given me a bit of a perspective to, um, to look for signals early on and to be as prepared as possible. I often tell people, I hope for the best to prepare for the worst, and that keeps me balanced. Yeah. <laughs> I think from what we have seen, technology has evolved so rapidly, and we, for lack of a better word, they called it warp speed in regard to the development of new vaccines. And I think those platforms will play an important role, not only for COVID, but also for other disease states. We also appreciate the role of personal protective equipment and how that can keep us safe. Um, I, I, we see it in decreased infection rates for other diseases, such as um, the influenza, the flu. We see decreased rates this year. I think the other part is the innovation to the commu for communication. We see it now. You know, we've all been zoomed out, but we're <laughs> able to carry on as best as possible. I think 10 years ago, if we had done this during the H1N1 pandemic, we wouldn't have had these resources and tools and things would have probably come more to a stand, you know, standstill. And then I think the other part of it is we see the resiliency of human beings. I know UK has been under an extreme lockdown for an extended period of time. If someone were to have told you a year ago that this would be your life, it would be unfathomable. But somehow you adapt, you find ways, and I think we all do. And I think just realizing that we can endure. Um, the one thing that I do feel sad about, my father was a child of the Holocaust. He survived four concentration camps, and I lost him about three years ago. And I would have liked to have talked to him about how he endured during World War II. And I think for, for the UK, you had the greatest generation as well. And, and to get their answers and responses of, of how did you persevere? You had bombs dropped on your homes every night. You know, at least even if we're sheltering in place, we go back to our homes and we have food and we're not worried about bombs being dropped on our homes. So, you know, there are things to be grateful for. That's amazing. And and for um, anybody who's listening to this and we've talked about being an astronaut, what is the process for anybody who might uh, might one day dream of being an astronaut? Because I guess it's one of those classic aspirations in life, isn't it? And I'm going to be an astronaut when I grow up. But for any youngsters listening to this who, who want to make that dream a reality, what would be the uh, what would be sort of the, the typical route? Well, I think the first piece of advice was what was given to me. And that was do what you love doing, independent of being an astronaut, because you're going to convey that skill set to what you're going to do if you become an astronaut. So, for example, there are physicians and there are engineers and there are scientists and there are pilots and there are teachers and artists. There are individuals who have other careers, and you then translate those skills to being an astronaut. There are selections that are ongoing every couple of years, depending on what the needs are, and you apply. And a lot of individuals try to get some experience working at the space agency, doing either engineering or scientific research or being a flight surgeon. 
and getting to know individuals. And it's, sometimes you have to just be persistent. I think we're coming into a different world now as we are again moving more towards a commercial space sector environment. So there'll probably be different opportunities as well. And I find that very exciting. And like I said early on, every one of us can be an astronaut. Right now you would need money to do that. So you can buy yourself a seat, such as on um, Virgin Galactic or SpaceX or Blue Origin. But it's opportunities, I think, that will be available for everyone one day. And will you be taking up that opportunity if, if, if it comes your way? Absolutely. In fact, <laughs> I wish I could do that right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think there's anybody who's more prepared than you. Well, I think, fortunately, I work with some incredible people. I think we all are prepared. And really, the pre major preparation is just to envision it. And if you envision it, you can make it happen. And you were accepted into the astronaut corps, as, as you mentioned earlier before, and, and you were a finalist and began some of the astronaut training. What was that like? It was just, I felt like a kid in a candy store. I loved every single aspect of it. You know, even from seeing how you do toilet training, you know, it's not as simple as you think for women, at least. Um, to going into flight simulators and, and experiencing, you know, what it would be like when you go into a, a basically a Trendelenburg position on launch. Um, one of the things that I would love to do would be in a KC-135. We call it um, very joyously the vomit comet <laughs> to, to experience what microgravity might be like. I think that would be really fascinating. One of my interests is as we move into the commercial space sector, that individuals who will be going into space are not going to be the perfect athletes. They're not going to be the perfect human specimens. You know, the testing will not be as robust. So it really behooves us to understand how the body adapts in, in space and also the equipment that one needs, the assistive devices to be able to do your job well and to enjoy your experience. And from a public health point of view, the world's clearly not in an ideal state at the moment, but we're hoping that things are going to get better over the coming year through the course of 2021. What message do you have for people listening to this who are looking for some words of hope, perhaps, of where we currently are and, and hopefully where we're heading um, as we fight the COVID-19 pandemic? It's really up to us. We have the ability to shift the curve. It's our human behaviors. It's really maintaining those public health measures such as social distancing and wearing a mask consistently and correctly and washing hands. Nothing too complicated, but we've been doing it. Your country has been doing it for centuries and quite effectively. We're a little younger, so we've only had about 200 and some years to do that. And also taking vaccines when you can get them. And really being considerate and caring for each other and not turning on one another and helping each other out. We'll be able to get through this. We've gone through other pandemics in the past. Our lives may be changed. We saw that after 9-11. As we enter in airports, we take off our shoes, we go through scanners, we understand all those principles. So I think we have to be nimble enough to know that that may happen. But I think we're given a really interesting window right now to assess what's important for us and to take politics out of this, help science drive it, but let humanity and our kindness towards each other guide us. It's very sad that politics intervened here. It's probably resulted in the loss of many lives. But because it was that way, it doesn't mean it has to continue. I think, you know, we all have lessons that we can learn from it and, and to move forward. 
The thing that concerns me is that there's so much we still don't know about the immune response to vaccines, as well as to natural infection, as well as to the new variants, as well as long-term impact. So it's our behavior of how we, as I go back to those public health measures that will help get us through and to the next level. Well, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark, it's been great and fascinating speaking to you on the Kielder Observatory podcast. And you have your own podcast in the pipeline, too, that people will be able to download very soon. I do. Thank you so much for mentioning that. We're hopefully going to be launching it in the next few weeks. Haven't completely decided on the title. I'm thinking it might be The Doctor's In, but we will let you know as soon as it launches. And I would love for your audiences to come and listen and participate with us as well. Our thanks to Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark for joining us in this episode of the Kielder Observatory podcast. Don't forget, you can find out more about what's happening at Kielder Observatory by heading online to our website, kielderobservatory.org. And don't forget to check out the various sessions that are coming up over the summer months. You can get in there and book your place now, as Dan mentioned at the start of this that uh, things are already starting to fill up and hopefully things will be back open again um, sooner rather than later. May onwards is certainly the plan. You can also find out more on our social media feeds as well. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and uh, regular updates there as and when they happen. For now though, thanks very much for joining us and we'll speak to you on the next episode of the Kielder Observatory podcast. <laughs>